Saturday the 28th of September and this is Monocle's House View. Today... For a man like him, a party like this, and a leader like this, this Prime Minister, to talk about morals and morality is a disgrace! After a week of fury and indignation in Westminster, will anything calm the storm engulfing British politics? Plus, Austria heads to the polls. Is Sebastian Kurz set for a comeback? And the day's newspapers too. I'm Georgina Godwin. Monocle's House View starts now. A very warm welcome to Studio One this Saturday morning. I'm Georgina Godwin and I'm joined today by Quentin Peel, Associate Fellow of the Europe Programme at Chatham House, and the journalist and Russia analyst Stephen Diel. Thanks both for, for coming in. It's, um, as we were just saying, what a nice way to spend a Saturday morning. It is indeed. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Uh, so, this week will likely be remembered as one of the most difficult sittings in Westminster's history. After that Supreme Court ruling saw MPs rush back to Parliament, fury and in Indignation soon gave way to rising concerns that the tone taken by some members was fueling fears for public safety. So this row began really, I mean, it followed on from the Supreme Court hearing on the Tuesday, but in the Commons on Wednesday, Johnson, Boris Johnson, the Prime Minister, told one MP that her concerns about aggressive language fueling violence were humbug, and he told another that the best way to honour the murdered MP Joe Cox's memory was to get Brexit done. Quentin, this was quite exceptional. Yes, it was extraordinary. And I think that it must be very clear that the Prime Minister himself, Boris Johnson, it's his use of language that actually is, if you like, really setting the tone. And the fact that people have, oh, yes, but they're doing it on both sides. No, he's in the responsible position. And it's use of language like the Surrender Act to describe the act of the House of Commons that binds his hands not to crash out of the EU, which instantly just creates this image of we're at war. Mm -hmm. Um, It's surrender is what you do on the battlefield. And also words like betray and betrayal and traitor. I don't think that Boris Johnson has used the word traitor, but it's used out on the streets constantly. And again, this is war. And it is part of what really worries me about the entire uh, framing of the debate on Brexit in Britain, that it is us against them. They are the enemy. And this has undermined the British negotiation position from the start, because we haven't gone into this saying, what can we reach a mutually acceptable compromise? We've gone in saying, we want to knock them off the battlefield. Absolutely. Stephen, I mean, were you as appalled by it as everyone else? Well, I'm probably um, probably a far more emotional person than Quentin, who's known for being rational and, and, and looks at things in a very clear way. Um, so, yes, I was, I was appalled by this. And, and I want to pick up on what Quentin said about this language of war, because it's not just been this week. Um, it goes back to the referendum in 2016, when people, people have been using absurd phrases, those who want to leave, of, of saying things like, um, you know, well, we'll show the Dunkirk spirit. Well, you know, that was, that was a, a serious um, loss in, in the Second World War. And, um, you know, when we were at war with part of Europe. Um, you know, we are not at war with Europe. Um, and and it, I, it is very dangerous all along. It's not been just this week. All along, this, this language has been fueling the debate. And what, unfortunately, the referendum did 
was it uncovered. It didn't make divisions in in our society, but it uncovered them. They, they'd been papered over, um, and either we knew they were there or we weren't aware even. But now everyone is so aware of of divisions. Um, I have uh, friends who ex friends who voted. Leave, who became very abusive. I don't speak to anymore. Um, we know it's it's divided families. Um, it's you know it's been a, it's been a process. But then to come out with this appalling language in 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 Parliament and from the Prime Minister, the man who's supposed to be leading the country, you know, leading leading suggests that you know you show an example. Um, and to, to use the language he did, uh, and and then it, it's not only um, th- this warlike language. I mean, to use a term like humbug is just so pompous because you know the, the 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 phrase really. If anyone knows literature, they read back, they think of Charles Dickens and, and a Christmas Carol, and bah, humbug is what Scrooge said to anything that was good. And, and so to to come out with the language with that sort of language, that is not the language that, that people would normally use. So that again is putting himself on a kind of pedestal apart from anything else, and for a leader i think it's just absolutely awful and it's very much in contrast to the very measured tones of the supreme court Mm. decision and the use of the word unlawful not illegal but unlawful to describe the actions of the government and the prime minister in suspending proroguing parliament so it was terribly measured and there's one other phrase i'd like to just pop into this because i flew to berlin for a television debate uh, in the middle of the week and uh, one of my fellow panelists said to me when i hear the words the people against parliament I think of 1933. Do you not think in Britain that those words are reminiscent of the destruction of the Weimar Republic and the rise of Hitler? And I know those sort of thoughts are not allowed, but the people against Parliament is exactly that sort of language. Mm. And this is now infecting all levels of society. Uh, There was a a book launch, Stuart Wheeler um, launched his book this week, and he was in conversation with Dominic Cummings. And as a journalist, I should have been excited about going to this. In the end, I didn't turn up because I felt like I couldn't even be in the same room as that amount of toxicity. It's extraordinary, isn't it? It is. It, it, it's, it's horrible. And, you know, you've still got... Uh, you mentioned Dominic Cummings, who, if listeners don't know, he is um, Boris Johnson's main advisor, but he was also head of the Leave campaign, and he is someone who, for whom the word toxic is very appropriate. He he really divides opinion in in British British society today. Um, so you know you you've got you, you've got you've got this coming from the top and and really just tearing people apart. People. Uh, normally rational people. It reminds me very much of a, a football match I was at many years ago between Crystal Palace and Everton, neither of which I support, but I was there. Um, and it all turned very, very angry, and there was a horrible tackle. Someone just went through like a, like an earth mover in front of us and, um, and got sent off, and, and an Everton fan next to me sort of mock applauded, and the Crystal Palace fan next to him said, right, come on, go outside, come on. And, and a few minutes later, he actually calmed down and, and apologised because, and it was, but it's that's it's that sort of example. You know, sport can do that. You get very excited, you get very passionate, but then hopefully you calm down. And 
people are not calming down and what this week has done has just brought it to a new level and made people even more angry and and even more opposed to each other. And even those who are the architects of this or indeed are trying to make it work. Now, I know that one of the key Brexit advisers has actually resigned this week, Quentin. Yes, absolutely. I mean, it's an extraordinary story because this is a civil servant, a very senior civil servant who's actually responsible for keeping the borders moving and particularly Dover-Calais and literally weeks before we're going to apparently crash out of the European Union, he has quit. And it is a sign of, I don't know if you remember, there was a report by the National Audit Office about a year ago warning that the whole Brexit process could see the British civil service fall apart like a chocolate orange. And actually, I mean, we've had three people in this position running the borders who've quit in three months. And we've had about 10 senior directors in the Brexit department. So the turnover of actually the officials intended to deliver the policy has been quite extraordinary and I think that might undermine things as well. Actually that's a, it's a very good point that Quentin makes because actually it goes much further as well. It's The civil service is, is there to maintain continuity. You know, the political parties come and go in government but the civil service are politically neutral they they keep the the wheels of government in the you know, with a small g throughout the country running and they have been so undermined by this and the, and it, so you know civil service includes diplomats and, and uh, as well and and you know they have been put in such awkward positions and and in many cases been dragged into the political process when they shouldn't be you know there should be that level um, which which keeps things running smoothly and and that's just that's just another aspect of, of life that has been really messed up by this whole process. Mm. Now, lots of the papers this week, of course, it was the UN General Assembly and Boris Johnson was in uh, New York for that. Lots of the papers ran pictures of, of him and Trump together looking remarkably similar. Uh, and many of the cartoons coming off the back of that were hilarious, but but very much uh, kind of showing uh, Johnson as, as the, the junior partner to, to Trump. One memorable one is him uh, as a baby being breastfed by Trump, which I particularly like by Peter um, but the, the point is that actually what's happening here is being mirrored on the other side of the Atlantic, uh, particularly with this whole Ukraine inquiry. Uh, and now that we see that uh, Kurt Volker, was, who was special advisor on Ukraine uh, to Trump's administration, has also gone with no explanation. What's that about, Quentin? Well, I think he's getting out of a very uncomfortable position that he found himself in. Kurt Volker is a very senior diplomat. He was a diplomat, uh, ambassador to NATO, uh, very much of the George W. Bush neocon brigade, uh, who actually took on this job in Ukraine voluntarily. He wasn't paid for it, um, but he was a key man in actually shuttling backwards and forwards between Moscow and Kiev and Washington. But clearly, he's been dragged into this exercise that Trump has uh, inspired of trying to expose corruption relating to Joe Biden and his son um, and setting up meetings for Rudy Giuliani, Trump's sort of legal um, uh, Svengali, to meet people close to the Ukrainian president. And I think he's probably getting out because he realizes that actually he was put in an impossible position. Mm. But it might be that he's also a bit scared that the White House will try and make him 
him the fall guy. Mm. And of course, this whole uh, uh, inquiry leading to impeachment, as we know, Stephen, uh, playing uh, very badly for, for Donald Trump. I wonder how it's being received in Russia. They're, they've sort of taken something of a step back. They, they are very keen these days publicly not to be seen to be commenting on these things, not to be in that they what they try and do when I say they I'm talking about the Kremlin, of course, um, is uh, not to do something where people can point the finger and say, look, there you are, you're you're um, you're, you're interfering. Um, so they will be laughing quite clearly they were laughing their socks off at this because it's anything that um that that, that disrupts the, the western way of doing things uh, suits them very well um and so uh, they will they will sit back rather smugly and and watch this whole farce going on mm-hmm. but uh, I, did you uh, spot there was a story um uh, coming from Dmitry Peskov, uh, Putin's spokesman, uh, showing there's a slightly nervous edge to the laughter because he was asked, what about Trump's conversations with Mr. Putin? And he said, we sincerely hope they will not be published. <laughs> he, that indeed, he did indeed, yes. No, there, there was, that was, that was a, a side of it that, um, uh, as you say, perhaps nervous, uh, an edge to the nervous laughter. Um, but, but otherwise, they, uh, I am sure behind the scenes, they are talking to people and um, putting spokes in wheels because that's what the Russians do. As, uh, as a great friend of mine um, who's studied Russia all his life says, you know, Russians don't, don't solve problems, they create them. Mm. Just taking this back to what we originally started talking about, which was the use of language and also the fact that Trump and, and, and Johnson seem to be on, on, on doing the same playbook. Uh, we've seen with Trump that what happens is that whenever there's some kind of big issue, he creates a diversion over here by saying something stupid or outrageous. Is, is Johnson doing the same thing? The Supreme Court things happens and he's just so rude to everybody in Parliament and that's what we're talking about now. Absolutely. So the fact that he was found to have effectively lied to Parliament and to the Queen is sort of brushed to one side because of the sheer fury with which he's counter-attacked. But uh, I think that uh, use of language is incredibly important. He is, as a journalist, somebody whose profession was all about the use of language, but I think that he actually um, rushes into places without thinking, and I think the use of the word humbug, absolutely classic. It's pure Boris Johnson, but I really don't think he realised how incredibly arrogant and dismissive that sounded of genuine fears of women members of Parliament who are facing the most unbelievable hostility and vitriolic abuse on Twitter and on the Mm, and, that, and very yeah, real death threats. Absolutely. I mean, that that's where the language, you know, we've been talking about, you know, how unpleasant it is. It's created divisions in society. But that's where it gets really serious when people are getting death threats, when people are being told things, you know, really, really horrible things. Um, sometimes people using the anonymity of uh, social media to do it, sometimes being absolutely direct. Mm. Um, but on another side of the, the, the Johnson affair, as it were, there, there's, he's, it may, he may even be out Johnson Johnsoned. Um, because, uh, of course, from his time, another story that's emerged this week is from his time uh, as London mayor. It seems that he 
gave uh, publicly funded grants to an American businesswoman who there are questions being asked, well, was she actually eligible for them because they were supposed to be for a British business? Uh, and um, and so that's one where something else is actually coming up to bite him. I mean, he's, he's uh, I don't think anyone will have much sympathy for him because he seems, you know, he's he, as he's made his own bed, which is full of lots of lumps, um, so may he <laughs> lie on things. it. But <laughs> don't let us lose sight of the fact that he has a very real constituency out there, just as Donald Trump has, of people who love this sort of aggressive language and laugh and find him funny. Mm. And so the truth is he is playing to an audience very deliberately, but it's, it's dangerous because it is incredibly divisive. It's taking what is already a very divisive issue and making it worse. Let's have a quick look at Austria, of course, because the country heads to the polls tomorrow. All signs suggest that the former Chancellor, Sebastian Kurz, is set for a comeback. Well, Quentin, Kurtz is famously young and famously anti-immigration. How is that likely to be seen by the rest of Europe? Well, I think people are watching quite nervously. On the one hand, they are actually quite relieved to see that the hardline populist party, the Freedom Party in Austria, has slipped back in the polls. Now, you'll remember that the reason why we're having this election in Austria is that the government between Sebastian Kurz and the Freedom Party fell apart in May... Uh, over this extraordinary sting where the leader of the Freedom Party was caught uh, in a villa in Ibiza um, being chatted up or chatting up apparently the niece of a Russian oligarch and saying, come and buy a newspaper in Austria. We'll give you government contracts if you turn the most popular newspaper in Austria into a supporter of my party. It was a sting operation which took about a year to emerge, but eventually caused the government to collapse. Now, the Freedom Party has slipped back, therefore, in the polls from about 26% to 20% now. The question is going to be... Sebastian Kurz is going to win this election. Nobody doubts that as the number one party, but he will need a coalition partner. Will he go back into coalition with the Freedom Party and therefore continue on this rather hard anti-immigration policy? Or will he actually try something much more popular clearly in Brussels, which is to bring in the Greens and the Liberals into a multi-rainbow sort of coalition? I think they call it the Deendl coalition in Austria, which would be much more pro-European, pro-business and middle of the road. My friends in Austria think he'll still be tempted to stay with the Freedom Party. I mean, Stephen, it's difficult ideologically for the Greens to go into coalition with a man who said he felt really happy with his last partner until the scandal. Indeed. Um, and um, Quentin's last point there is, is um, I, I don't have friends in Austria, but from what I've read about it, um, it seems that he is more likely to uh, to, to stick with the far-right party be, um, it, it, because of the idea of, you know, keep your friends close and keep your enemies closer still, almost. Um, uh, there's a feeling that, as with a lot of political parties, particularly radical parties uh, of either wing, that if they're in opposition, they can say so much more than they can when if, if they're in government. If they're in government, they're expected to follow up their words, whereas in, in opposition, they can say whatever they like, um, which comes back to our original discussion about divisions in society. And, and um, uh, perhaps there's the feeling that the far right would be able to create more divisions in Austrian society and stir up more trouble if they're 
if they're an opposition rather than if they're part of a coalition ruling the country. But, I mean, it gives the, the far right almost a double stamp of approval in the rest of Europe, doesn't it? I mean, Salvini until recently, Orban, Le Pen, etc. This is, this is getting their ideological brothers and sisters back in, in the EU government. Yeah, I, I think that, uh, you know, the louder you shout, the more you put everybody else on the back foot, should you, just the point that Stephen's making, should you keep them in opposition or bring them inside the fold. And uh, Austria's tried to do that. If you remember, it was Wolfgang Schüssel, the former chancellor, who brought the Freedom Party into power and seemed to have at least neutralised them for a while. But actually, they've not gone away. They've proved remarkably resilient. And they're still very much there. If you like, they've shifted the whole debate in Austria over to the right. And I think that's what we're seeing happening right across Europe that everybody's actually started to pick up some of the clothes of the more extreme parties leaving the centre ground in Europe very weak. Now I don't want to sound alarmist but earlier on you brought up um, the the fact that that one of your fellow panellists had talked to you about this being a a 1930s moment. I mean this analogy could continue. Well it does worry me because uh, although it would be quite wrong to see, you know, the British Conservative Party having anything like the ideology of a Nazi party. But if you destroy belief in your fundamental institutions, Parliament, the courts, and so on, that is very dangerous. And I think that what really worries me about the Brexit debate in Britain is that it has pitted two forms of democracy against each other, direct democracy and parliamentary democracy. They are not compatible. And so one side of the debate is saying the will of the people is represented by a referendum vote. And the other half is saying, no, no, the will of the people is represented by Parliament. And why we're in this terrible mess is the two things simply can't work together. Uh, And in terms of Kurtz and his government, should we be looking back at history for for lessons there if he does go towards the right? Well, um, not well we must never forget our history that's absolutely clear i don't think we should be saying oh my god there we go again europe's tipping towards uh, a sort of revival of fascism or whatever but having said that undermining our institutions is very dangerous and then it's the responsibility of all the political parties and it's much more fragmented than it used to be to actually fight to show that the institutions work and go back to the Supreme Court decision in Britain uh, in on Tuesday that was a decision which I think was enormously reassuring it said Parliament is sovereign and power must belong to Parliament. I was on another discussion the other day where somebody tried to say, oh, but the people against Parliament, that's all about Oliver Cromwell. Complete rubbish. (laughs) Oliver Cromwell was Parliament and he was against the King. And in the case in Britain, it's Parliament against the Executive. That's where the real battle lies, not Parliament against the people. It's all too much and I think perhaps the only way out of it is to take drugs. Unfortunately, (laughs) it seems we can get them uh, from online pharmacies very easily. <laughs> this is a big headline in the Times. Let's have a look through these uh, through these newspapers now. So this is about the um, online online opioid scandal. Uh, dangerous painkillers sold without proper checks, despite fears over addiction. Big front page splash on in the Times. I think it, it goes further than that. Really, um, online drugs. Really, that there's. Um, 
someone I know rather well who, uh, very sadly, his daughter two years ago died because of drugs that she bought online that were sold from Ukraine. And he's just taken the very brave move of actually going to Ukraine and finding the person who sent her the drugs. Um, they are, they're supposed to be sort of slimming pills to keep your weight down. Um, but they're, uh, and they're not allowed to be sold in Britain, um, but they can be posted in. Um, and this girl in, in, you know, wanting to lose a bit of weight had, had seen this online advert and, and uh, uh, sent off for them and, and took them. And um, to over a few days, she became very, very ill and, and, and died. Um, interestingly, when uh, the, her father went to Ukraine, and he tracked down the man with the, who was with the television crew. And the man actually apologized and said, well, it's all about money. You know, we live very poorly here and I just needed to make some money. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm very sorry for what's happened to your daughter, which was, he said, uh, the father said, was quite gratifying to, 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 to get the apology. It doesn't bring his daughter back. Um, but it's, you know, the, 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 I think, you know, the Times is, is actually touching the tip of the iceberg. Uh, I think there's an awful lot going on that's being sold online, which, which shouldn't be because it's, it's not regulated, it's, it's, um, it's completely uncontrolled, and it could be very, very dangerous, as in that case. Technology has got so far ahead of our capacity to regulate it, and that is an enormous challenge we face. Mm. And it takes, it takes um, about 10 years for a drug to be, in Europe to, for a drug to become regulated, even a drug that you know, appears to be very safe, and it still has to go through so many trials um, over the course of normally 10 to 12 years before it will be available to the public. But if it's just being sold online, that, that's, it's, that worries me. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, there are, there's obviously a lot to unpack in the papers, but I quite wanted to go to something a bit jolly. Um, <laughs> if we could, we could look at the German papers for, for a nanosecond, however. Well, they're quite <laughs> dull, to be honest. The Süddeutsche Zeitung's leading on, on the Trump and Ukraine story, uh, but the Frankfurt Allgemeine, worthy newspaper that it is, is leading on a story about local councils being rather upset with the government about setting uh, a very high threshold before people have to contribute to helping look after old age people. It's a very big issue, but it is rather a dull one on a Saturday morning. (laughs) All right, well, let's go to pure entertainment, although, of course, this isn't. So people, television viewers, particularly here in Britain, will remember in the 1980s when there was a television programme called Spitting Image. It was absolutely central to British political life. Uh, uh, Puppets of Margaret Thatcher and all the the, uh, central political figures Uh, It was a wonderfully satirical television show uh, and really poked fun quite savagely, I think, at at the uh, political establishment. It's back. Yes, it's it's coming back. In fact, um, just to add as well, it's not just Britain because um, in the 1990s when uh, all the the restrictions on media had been removed in in a a chaotic Russia, but they produced their own programme entirely inspired by Spitting Image called Kukri, which means puppets or dolls. Um, And that perhaps went even further. And in fact, it was an episode of that when President, or when to be President, Putin arrived on the scene in 1999, public scene in 1999, um, and they had a program all about him, and they had him as a, they, it was a Russian fairy tale that they retold, and he was the, the, this, this little character going around, and he was deeply offended. And one of the first things he did after he became president was first of all close the program down, and eventually close the channel down, um, which shows the the power of, of good satire. And what they're saying now is that that with spitting image, um, it became it, it was satirical, but 
life has become and politics have become so satirical. How do you out satire the 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 ludicrous in in society? And the challenge they've been thrown down, which they've accepted, is okay. Let, let's let's see what we can do with what's going on now with 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 Trump and Johnson and Putin. Um, and uh, I, for once, shall certainly be watching, even though I'm not a great television watcher. I mean, there's a great quote from from Roger Law, who's one of the people behind it, uh, and who says that obviously they're taking this to America. He said, mocking Trump is a challenge. He said, I've heard other satirists say that he's unsatirizable because he's a satire in himself. Well, actually, with puppets, you can go much, much further because actors won't do that for you. And by Christ, we're going to give it a go. (laughs) (laughs) Which sounds completely fabulous. Were you a fan, Quentin? Oh, absolutely. And I remember those wonderful scenes of Margaret Thatcher and Norman Tebbit and so on. I can't remember who was Thatcher was always handbagging people. So walloping people like Michael Heseltine and so on with her handbag. And it just, you know, it took language into that space. It was quite violent, it must be said. But perhaps if it's entirely within the sphere of satire and laughter, is it safe? I mean, to mock people who are being extreme is very important to be able to do that. But what I think the really interesting thing will be um, how people react, because also what it says in the Guardian story, it's quoting uh, a number of people who were who were mocked. One of them, Edwina Curry, who was a junior minister at the time, and she said, "Yes, I, you know, even though I was mocked, even though I was made to look foolish, I'd made it." And it's you know, it's that any publicity is good publicity for some. Um, so, uh, and, and yet, when on the Russian version, Putin took such offence that he took it off the air. So it'll be very inter- interesting to see. You know, I can't imagine Trump's going to like it. I mean, Trump apparently, Trump, as, it, as they put it is writing his tweets with his anus. Um, <laughs> so you know, he's going to get a hard time, and, and he's not very good at taking sticks. But I suspect Boris Johnson will like it. <laughs> anyway, as, I mean, as long as they say, as, as long as they, as, as they say, as long as they spell your name right, and that's all we have time for. That's from me, Georgina Godwin. That's G-O-D-W-I-N. Uh, also, our, uh, our supervising producer was Ben Ryland. Our researcher was Charlie Filmercourt, and our studio manager today was Max Bauer. Uh, thank you. Thank you very much for listening and uh, Monaco Weekends continues in just a moment.